Hello, listeners and followers of Bestowing the Brush. It's Dallas Noctegal here again. I'm interrupting my regular publishing schedule to bring you a surprise episode here. I have an exciting announcement for you. 128 years ago this month, in the month of March, a club was formed at the request of one Miss Charlotte Mason to a man named William Gershom Collingwood, better known as W.G. Collingwood. Maybe you have heard him mentioned on my podcast before, or have read the collection of links from the correspondence class I'm speaking of, and maybe some of you have even done a few drawings from these yourself. Collingwood was the director of the Department of Fine Arts at University College Reading from 1907 until 1911. But prior to that, in 1891, he worked with Mason to form an art club for the PUS. That would be the Parents' Union Schools. Students in Forms 2 and above, so roughly ages 9 and above, were assigned this work. But anyone that received the parents' review and paid the membership fee could participate. It was called the Faisole Club. Surprise big news! I'm launching an informal virtual Faisole Club today. Let's do this together. Who is the modern virtual version of this Faisole Club for? Whether you use Mason's philosophy of education or not, this club is simply for home sketchers, people willing to learn and wanting to improve their drawing, powers of observation, and seeing skills. Here's what Collingwood says. The club is not for painters who take this up to be their life's work and profession, but for humble lovers of art, old-fashioned folk, people living country lives, in essence, everyday people. The club is a little quiet corner, a group of people who don't wish to compete with the best artists. This brings me to another point. If you're an artist, this club may not be for you, unless, like me, you want to re-educate yourself in art training with a Charlotte Mason perspective and practice, and if you're willing to try new things. You don't even necessarily have to be wanting to be trained in a Charlotte Mason way. I've read this material and it's so, so good and it would be good for anyone who wants to learn. So there are two options for you. Listen up. The ultra informal version is that your family, you, or your child should complete some drawings inspired by this first prompt for March, of which I'll explain here in a moment and then simply upload them to your Instagram feed anytime this whole month with the hashtag FaisoleClubTheLemon. I will not critique these drawings, but I will be sure glad to see them and the accountability for you will be helpful, as well as the camaraderie of this virtual club. The second option is for those of you who want some thoughtful and helpful critique of your drawings from someone who has been diligently studying Collingwood and Ruskin's drawing instruction for some time now. As of now, that would just be me. My bandwidth is small, so this means that I will choose a selection of drawings that illustrate a few main themes of critique. For example, 
if 50 drawings are submitted and six of them contain roughly the same problem areas or strengths, I will randomly choose one to showcase on my IG and Facebook page and deliver the critique either anonymously, if you wish, or if you don't mind, I'll mention you as the owner. Now hear me out here. In the original club, the collected portfolio for the month also then got sent back around to each club member, along with Collingwood's criticisms, which allowed individual members to see each other's work. So this logistical step of the process was really quite a help to the members. Collingwood states in one paper, for we help one another more than we know in sharing our strength and confessing our failures. That is the value of class teaching. And it is pleasant to hear that so many of the members find the monthly portfolio interesting and instructive, far more than if their drawings were returned alone, even with the fullest criticism. They find, as they ought, that example is worth more than precept. So if you're ready to do this, here's what you should do. Draw from Collingwood's original prompt that I will deliver to you later in this podcast. If you want to read the paper yourself, look up paper number one, entitled Wodie Citronen Blun, or The Lemon, with the link I provide from archive.org through Redeemer University, courtesy of Emily Kaiser. That compilation of papers can also be found in the show notes of episode 98 of A Delectable Education Called Drawing. While you're already there and you want an overview of how drawing was taught in Mason's schools, click the episode for a listen. Other Faisole Club information can be found on ambleside.org, and I will provide links for all of this in the show notes, so look forward to that. Now, how do you submit your drawings and by when do I need them? I am currently taking submissions starting now, and I will close submissions at 6 p.m. Central Time on March 26th. Either direct message me on Instagram and send a photo there to remain anonymous, or share images of your family's work on your profile with the hashtag FesoleClubTheLemon. Otherwise, you can email them to me at bestowingthebrush at gmail.com. I will collect them at any time throughout the month, though. Three weeks gives you plenty of time to get multiple drawings done. I encourage that. Practice is so, so helpful. Your first drawing may be a bit rough. Be prepared. But use that failure or the mistakes to try, try again. It'll be worth it. As far as the level of critique goes, I'm planning to stay pretty informal while we're doing this on Instagram, but still thoughtful and helpful in my responses. For those who want critique, please specify so, along with the name and age of the participant with their photo. So, to repeat, those who want accountability and camaraderie only, submit freely on your IG page with the hashtag FaisoleClubTheLemon. I can't wait to see. Those who are ages 9 and above, and at any and all skill and experience levels, who want kind, helpful, and thoughtful critique to also be shared with the other club members, direct message me on Instagram with your photo, along with the name, age, and this photo should be taken in natural light of your drawings. Yes, 
There can be multiple of them. As long as you send them to me before I close submissions, they will be entered for consideration and will be shown around, but only a few will be explicitly shown for examples. Are you ready to be in the club? The virtual Fissolet Club? Great. Here's the first paper written by W.G. Collingwood. Happy drawing! Part 1. First Studies from Nature 1. The Lemon Late in the autumn of 1882, we had driven up from Florence in the heat of the day, sketched Fra Angelico's monastery, the Tuscan artists, observatory that Milton speaks of, on the top of Fiesole, with sunlit slanting across its pines and purple summits of Apennine looking in among their stems. And we went down before dusk to see the ancient walls of the town. Just outside the gate, Mr. Ruskin, with whom I was then traveling, showed me how the cyclopene masonry of the foundations seemed to pass by hardly noticeable degrees into a natural escarpment of living rock, so bedded and joined that it looked like the handiwork of men. It seemed that the prehistoric builders had fixed upon that natural feature as the opportunity for their citadel, and only sought to complete and continue the natural wall by fitting together such blocks of native limestone as lay at hand exactly after the pattern of nature, bed to bed and joint to joint. That, said Ruskin, began Etruscan architecture, exemplifying for all time the first law of good building, how stones may be well and truly laid. It grew into the wonderful art which Etruria taught to all Italy, by which Rome itself not in a day was built. And after many days, Florence, too, down in Val Diarno, with her baptistry and Duomo and Giotto's tower, the consummation of architecture. Meanwhile, Fiesole, 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 founded by the mountain giants, Cyclops and stargazing Atlas, grew to be the central and sacred home of Etruscan thought and art giving out their laws to all the Western world as Athens, Greece. Upon this old citadel was reared the house where the painter saint of medieval Christianity in trance saw heaven opened and angels ascending and descending. There, later still, to the beginner of modern science, heaven once more was opened, if it were only through a telescope. No angels there now but in their place the mystery of eternal law and the power that guides the stars in their courses. And these, the mythic laws of fours and fas, the mystic laws of heaven and hell, and the scientific laws of the sacred book of nature, the triune codes of conduct and faith and knowledge, indivisible when rightly viewed, and indissoluble are the presences haunting the city of the mountain the laws of Fiesole. Founded upon the living rock, built up out of it line upon line, but repairing its broken places, strengthening its weaker sides, raising its height still higher. That is a parable to us of another sort of building, 
with which we are all concerned. The edification of living temples, the education of the human spirit. In this architecture, too, we must work according to those first laws of Fiesole. Not vainly hoping to conjure up an Aladdin palace out of vacancy, nor hastily piling a babble of far-fetched graces and futile accomplishments, but developing the resources and confirming the powers given, so that, one with another, the lives we have to form may stand together, wisely planned and nobly grouped into a new city, gloriously to be spoken of, whose foundation is in the holy mountains. And for this end there are many means, as well the singers as the players on instruments shall be there. You see that this conception of a city of God included the finer arts as necessary to its perfection. Poetry and music are named as its glories. There was no need to mention the sculptor's work of Chapiter and Cherubim, the embroidery of the veil in blue and purple and crimson. Mere walls, you had thought, and a roof would have been enough, but it was not so. Art, as a means of education, has not used its privileges and fulfilled its mission. It has been too often employed in the service of vanity to teach a mere accomplishment, an idle trick by which the amusement of an odd half-hour shall be passed off as a colorable imitation of the work of genius and labor. There is no education in that any more than in teaching dogs to dance and parrots to talk. And yet art, when rightly directed, is educational, for it trains not only one faculty, but all the faculties together. It trains the hand and the eye. It trains the head and the heart. It teaches us to see and to see truly. It teaches us to think. That science can do. But it teaches us also to admire and to love. It disciplines the emotions. With this belief, Ruskin began in his later years to rewrite his teaching and to rearrange it in accordance with those methods which a long experience and study had shown him to be the best and truest, both because the laws he attempted to lay down were the natural and simple canons of practice, like that earliest Etruscan building, developing the powers which we all have in our possession in solid and straightforward progress and because his method was learned from those Italian masters whose art centered in Fiesole, he called his book The Laws of Fiesole. But that book was never finished. Ill health and other claims on the author's attention made it impossible for him to carry out his plan completely. And yet the spirit of it is sufficiently indicated. These lessons are in no sense a reproduction of Ruskin's program of exercises, but they are founded on his suggestions and carry out his teaching as it was understood by one of his pupils. We have been talking about the land where, as Mignon's song says, the lemons grow. Since the time when our England forefathers learned from the masons brought over by St. Wilfred and Benedict Biscop 1,200 years ago, all our best lessons in art have come from Italy, and artists, you know, are fond of Italian models. 
Shall we ask one to sit for us for our first attempt? If we can't get a mignon to paint, we can get one of her lemons for a penny. I dare say there is one in the storeroom. I can find only one, and that is a poor specimen. It is not elegant and elliptical like most lemons. It is too dumpy and lumpy to be perfect, and the wrinkle at the end farthest from the stalk is grossly exaggerated, so that the tip of it is tilted back like a snub nose or the cap of liberty. It will hardly do for an example. And yet, the founders of Fiesole used the material that came to hand. And, indeed, as this lemon lies on the table, I feel that I may align it at first. It is not a mere lump. See how it pulls itself together to the place where the stalk has been, and swells away from the little round brown spot and varying surfaces that sometimes seem as though they were going to be flat, and then glide into roundness again like a crystal whose facets have been almost worn away by ages of washing in a riverbed. And then its splendid luster and glow of color. Decidedly, it is worth painting. But I can't paint it lying down there on the table. I want it on the level of the eye and farther away. Some other day we can discuss the reasons why. Meanwhile, let us put it on the cabinet at the end of the room, about or nearly 12 feet away. You think it is too far off to be seen properly. But look, as it stands there, it seems somehow rounder than it did before. The bright shine comes out brighter, and the dark side seems fuller and broader. All the texture, the little details you expected to be so troublesome, have disappeared. And we see nothing but a space of yellow so gray-dated that you recognize it for a solid mass. I put a dark green book behind it against the wall to relieve it more distinctly. How it glows there like a golden lamp in the green gloom. Decidedly, it is worth painting. For a start, we don't need an elaborate outfit, say, ten two-penny tubes of moist watercolors, cobalt blue, Prussian blue, gamboge, pale chrome yellow, orange chrome, yellow ochre, raw sienna, burnt sienna, light red, and crimson lake. Later, we may want Chinese white, but it is easier to begin watercolor in transparent paints. Keep the tubes in any little box. A plate will do best for a palette. A half-crown flat sable brush will serve for most purposes, but Get two or three of various sizes, not very small. In drawing papers, the most generally useful is the surface known as N, i.e. not rough nor hot pressed. A seven by five inch block costs one shilling six pennies. A Watman art student's board, 14 by 10 inches, costs two pennies, and that is better for it does not cockle when the paint is wet. You can of course have more expensive materials, but I find that many beginners are a little afraid of their fine color boxes or think that elaborate tools will work by themselves. Please note from the outset that paints and brushes are good servants, but bad masters. 
I want to dash away with bright yellow and dark green at once. But we must have an outline to guide the color. At least, the laws of Fiesole say so. Plenty of clever painting is done without preliminary outlining. And to that power we all hope to attain. But if you can knock in these forms accurately with a brush and a blot, you don't need lessons in the rudiments of art. How big is the outline to be? Better make it just the size of the real thing. We want to train our eyes to accuracy, and we don't train them unless we accustom them to accuracy from the first. Some teachers, I know, forbid measuring, and in an examination that is right. But in study, the more carefully you measure at first with compasses, the sooner you will get the power of measuring with the eye. Take the length and breadth of the lemon and mark them on your paper with dots. And now draw the outline, if you please. You can't at a single stroke. No more can I, to confess the truth. It seemed that almost any round would do, for this is not an elegant lemon. But here it is, a little flattened. Not too much. It must be rounder. No, that is too round more tapered towards the point of its snub nose. No, not so much. Well, with pencil and India rubber we have done our best and ask the first comer to criticize. We are told, I think you have made it too cornery here and too fat there, but I am not an artist and I really don't know. Never mind, you are right and it shall be altered. Is it correct now? Then we had better fix the line with pen and ink, so that it may never get lost when we rub the pencil away. No matter if it shows when the painting is done, it is far too curious and interesting to lose. It has cost us something, and we love it for that. Too well to lose it. And now to draw any other shapes in our picture in the same way. At last we may paint. Without shading? Certainly. If we were not going to color, shading would be necessary. But when we have colored properly, we shall find that the shading will be there. It will be wise to begin with the background and save up the bright yellow for a treat at the last. To get the colors right at once, we can mix them first and touch the tint on the edge of a separate slip of the same sort of paper and hold it up in a good light so as neither to get a shade nor a shine on it. Against the object, not touching the object, but at an arm's length between the eye and the object in the distance. The dark green book seems to be imitable with burnt sienna and Prussian blue. Dry the slip quickly by the fire, and you see it fades a little when dry, so we must put more strength and warmth into our tint to allow for the colors drying colder. And remember this is a convenient rule. Now lay the same tint over the background, not very wet. Where deeper shadows come, throw in some more color, drier. And where the lights come, take them out with a nearly dry brush while the tint is still wet. Do a small piece at a time, stopping at any convenient line, or else the color will dry before you can get your lights taken out and your darks thrown in. 
and don't put in the darks with very wet color, or it will run about into slops. It looks far too dark, does it not? But that is because of its contrast with the white paper. You know how dark even a clean handkerchief looks in the snow. As we have matched the color, it is bound to be right, and it looks sloppy and granular, but it will dry into flatness and transparency. Or, if not today, it will come right another day, after you have had a little more practice. Now, the color of the cabinet, which is puzzling. Burnt sienna won't do without some blue in it, and then perhaps some crimson, and then perhaps some yellow. We shall get it at last. And finally, the lemon itself, for which raw chrome yellow is not enough. It needs a little orange and gamboge to warm it, and the dark side is very deep yellow, raw sienna chiefly. If it were a very dull day, we should need a little blue, for the less light there is in the sky, the more gray is in the shades indoors. But the dark side of that lemon will never be black or brown by daylight. It seems tedious to match these colors, but the work goes more quickly for it at the end. There is no uncertainty and muddling and rubbing out and getting into despair and wasting time, thanks to the laws of Fiesole. We have tinted the lemon, taken out its light, thrown in its dark, and the drawing is done. A rather long hour's session, but not much more. We will place the picture beside the object and look at them from a distance. Extremely like, but not exactly like. Fainter and mistier, for the tones you matched were the real tones as seen through a dozen feet of atmosphere and suffusing light. Not only the tones, but the colors seem fainter than nature's. You want to paint them up? More yellow, more green and brown? Very well, try. You have got your picture darker and deeper in color, but what has happened? Somehow the sweetness of the color has gone, its luminousness, and the freshness of the first wet work. It is beginning to look what artists call heavy. And though it will not seem so violent at a distance, it is getting just a little coarse. The refinement and softness of the real tones, harmonized by atmosphere and suffusion, are gone. But the lemon will keep, and you can make another drawing careful outline, penned down, matched tints, steadily laid, no retouching, and if that fails, another till you're satisfied. The rest of the paper gave directions to intending pupils about sending in their work. 31 contributed. The contagion of enthusiasm also fired a little girl of five to produce a creditable orange on a bit of note paper showing that the subject was not too difficult. So far as there were failures, they came from the little knowledge which is the dangerous thing. Some, having shaded from the cast, worked their lessons into cannonballs with black darks and blazing lights. 
Others, having heard that rough paper is proper for sketches, used a surface so coarse that their tints were mottled with white specks. Or, knowing that outlines ought not to be seen in a marketable picture, shirked the penwork altogether. But the object of the lesson was to make them look for themselves, not painting by recipe. And I was much uplifted by the first month's results.